One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore and over the course of the podcast we'll be going around the British and Irish Isles as we speak to Scott Hastings, Richard Hibbert and Gordon Darcy. Plus Craig Murdoch updates us on the Rugby League World Cup which has got to the semi-final stages and commentator Nick Heath tells us how England's women are getting on. The first time I'm joined here in the studio by The Telegraph's rugby news correspondent Gavin Mears. Gavin, how are you? Very well, Brian. Thank you. Man, uh, the weekend was a filthy day at Twickenham. We will spend a little bit of time talking about the other home countries, but we've got guests from each of them. So let's uh, let's just have a look very briefly. Scotland near. I mean, people have been saying about Scotland. It was a great performance. It was in parts, um, and they were saying we can lose the plucky underdog mode. Well, we're still lost. Yeah. But yeah, you know the the, tr- the tries were. Were good. Um, Kieran Reid should have been sent to the sin bin uh, for a cynical tackle. Well, a cynical slap down when he was on the floor. And um, New Zealand are the world champions. So, yeah. how I much think, credit did they take from it? I think quite a bit, Brian. As you say, um, they did still ultimately lose the game, but we, you know, we've seen how good the All Blacks have been over the last four years. Um, I think it's been quite a positive start for Gregor Townsend. He's come in well. We've seen probably a bit more of an attacking shape from Scotland. And, um, you know, we we were sort of watching the game from Twickenham after the England game. We saw the half-time score of three points all and then uh, the drama of the second half. And Scotland, you know, a couple more decisions could have gone the other way. But ultimately, I think Scotland... It's a kind of result that will tee them up for this game against Australia at the weekend, and um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Scotland win that game. The Irish and Welsh results vastly changed, changed teams. Yeah, you know, I think Wales had a bit more experience than Ireland starting fifteen, but I'm struggling to really get a handle on how much you can read into these two I, games. I, I think very little, very little, apart from the opportunity that it gives the coaches to sort of blood some players that they just wouldn't be afforded the luxury of doing so during the Six Nations. Um, uh, the, the likes of Ireland give you Joe Carberry a chance at fly half. Mm. I think he's ended up maybe with a broken arm, uh, unfortunately, from that game. But 
Very little. It, it, I suppose it maybe just um, exposes the lack of depth in both Ireland and Wales that you see their effective sec- second tri- uh, string sides struggle uh, at times to put away the tier two nations. Yeah. Uh, I tell you, Warren Gatlin must be the unluckiest coach in the world. Everywhere he goes, the clubs have problems... Uh, teams have problems getting front row replacements on. I don't know. It must be extremely <laughs> difficult when you're cursed like that. England. I made the comment. It, it, it went down well with English people, not not anyone else. But you know, the margin of victory was cruel for Australia. But who cares? And <laughs> at, at the end of the day, let, let's get right to this. Michael Checker didn't, in his post-match interview, blame the officials, um, but he was obviously very unhappy. Yeah. Um, Throughout the game, he's—I mean—he's being investigated now for. Yeah. Uh, and and look, let, let's get that one out of the way. This isn't football. We don't want fourth officials and everyone else being the target of, you know, rants by irate coaches. Yeah. Um, so, when you look at the decisions as well, and I've looked at them very carefully a lot of times. I'm sorry, but. You know, if Hooper had either not ignored or known the offside law, you know, when he was in front of the ball, he would have stopped. Yeah. He should have stopped. Yeah. It was a difficult... If you, you know, you watch the replay, you watch the slow motion, he's aware of the offside law. You can see him. He slightly checks to the left. Yeah. He isn't running directly forwards, but he is moving forwards, and that's where he was undone. And the second um, one, I mean, yeah. Stephen Moore, I, this happens, I understand that, and I feel I have much more sympathy with him because... You know, you're timing the ball and timing your supporting runs and someone checks and, you you know, at that speed, you, you, it only takes a slight check and you're in front. But he was in front. Yeah. I, I think if you go through every decision, I think the referee and the TMO got them right. Yeah. I think it was just one of those days where well, every decision yeah. went against Australia. Yes. And that just uh, built up the layer and layer of frustration with Cheka, who is looking at it from a completely different point of view. Mm. But if you look at it in the cool light of day, I don't think you can really argue with any of the decisions. It's no, just that they the all went one for what England. People saying on Twitter, the Rob Shaw was offside. He wasn't offside. The uh, the fact is, you're not off. You, you are not. Be, you're not to be penalised. Yeah. In an offside position, unless, unless you do certain things. Yeah. Now, moving towards the ball is not one of them in general play. That wording is specifically mentioned in kicks when yeah. people are offside. Yeah. The reason it doesn't apply to general play is if it did, that wording would appear in the general play. So it's quite simple, actually. Yeah. So to, to cl- you know to cloud it with that makes no sense. And the fact is that Rob Shaw didn't obstruct a pass. He didn't obstruct a run. Um, he didn't play a man. He didn't play the ball. And by the time his tackle was made, it was behind the gain line of the original thing. So that's quite that's quite clear, despite attempts to 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 muddy that. And I also I'd also just say this: the fact that Australia did superbly well to cope with thirteen, well fourteen, then thirteen, then fourteen, you know, men on the field, and in the first twenty minutes of the second half. Dragged it, you know, they outplayed England, yeah. And but they couldn't get the ball over the line, and that yeah. wasn't you know, it was due to the fact they spilled the ball twice, then they dropped you know, a, a, what should have been a, a very simple it wasn't an easy pass to take, but it, a combination of pass and 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 catch went wrong. And to that extent, you've got to say, irrespective of the conditions, they worked themselves into a position where they should have put points on the board and they didn't, yeah. And I think, I think England 
uh, privately were frustrated at their inability to score points when they had a one and two man advantage. And that that is a, that was one bit one of the big downsides I yeah. think for England. They need but against to be able that, to do that against that brand. I think what they didn't do was lose their organisation, lose their work rate, and actually, I think. As we entered the final 10 minutes, the, the, the effort that Australia had had to expire yeah. on coping with um, the lack of numbers during that period around halftime caught up with them. Yeah. And England, to their credit, uh, had kept their focus, kept working, kept sticking to their game plan. And suddenly we had the burst of try scores. Well, this is one of the hallmarks, I think, of the side, which is a very useful one, a very good one to get under Jones, is that... England has seemed to find a way to, whilst, whilst under pressure and extreme pressure at times, not to concede tries. They might concede um, you know, the odd penalty so they don't get too far behind or they don't give away leads on the scoreboard. And then when they do get the chances, bang, they're able to execute them. You know, And this is partly due to the team shape and things. But also, you have to say, yet again, whatever you, whatever you call them, whether you call them finishes, which is a silly thing, isn't it? <laughs> or you call them substitutes or whatever, yeah. the England bench, again, yeah. was significant. Oh, massive. And, you know, we just saw Danny Kerr at his best, I yeah. think, on Saturday. He is, he's always been a brilliant footballer. Um, his execution of the chip kicks, his ability to see space, his, his pace. Well, the first um, one especially, because people say it's a little chip. It's not really a chip kick because he manages to, when he takes the ball end over end, yeah. it gets down quickly. Yeah. So as a defender, you're not under a lob ball. Yeah. As soon as the ball touches the ground, it's a whole different set of rules, can't mark it. Yeah. Um, uh, but again, we're looking at Australia um who should be looking at what they did wrong before anything that the officials did or didn't do. Well, again, on that one, Curtly Beale on the, on the daily try gave up thinking it was going to go out. Massively, yeah. yeah. So not and, only, and Beale. Beale was one of the players in the sin bin, so he had no yep. excuse about fatigue. He yep. just was cantering. He yep, thought the exactly. ball was going out. And this is where we get back to England's work. Right? But, daily but, yeah, never give up. Exactly. But on, but on that, on, on, the, on the, care chip for the, uh, the care kick for the first try, for the, the, the first of the two th- ones that he contributed to by kicking, the Australian winger was woefully slow to turn. Yeah. I mean, he's a big man, but that, that's, you know, so they, and then it was a superbly weighted kick for the Johnny May try and he, you know, he, backed, he backed that up. But I, I also think, you were talking about bench contributions. Um, what do you think? You know, the front row gave. They you know, stopped giving pe- free kicks and penalties away, which is important. Yeah, yeah. And Itoji came on. You know, so how overall do you think Jones will see that performance? I think he will be impressed. I think a lot was made about the sort of flatness of the of the performance and the crowd at Twickenham against Argentina. Jones spoke spoke afterwards to us on on Saturday about the conditioning program that they'd actually worked harder in the week before the Argentina game, maybe harder than they should have done in a normal test week. But it was all about peaking for Australia, and particularly in the last 20 minutes, which they delivered on. And I think um, if we look at the front row, as you mentioned there, players like Harry Williams coming on, uh, Sam Simmons at number eight, had a nice nice touch in the lead-up to, to May's try. Um, so we've, we, you know, he's, he's unearthing some players... Uh, at the same time, he's managing the Lions players back into mm. his setup. Um, didn't start Otoji again, and that's partly due, due to conditioning. Um, he, but he had a massive impact when he did come on, quite probably earlier than he expected to do so. So I think we haven't seen any Lions players 
become injured during so far and uh, they have not really missed a step and I think overall um, it's a shame that in a sense we don't have a, England don't have a, 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 a higher profile fixture coming up this weekend but at the same time Brian that allows Jones to rotate um, and give some of those replacements we've been talking about making such a good impact see how they start see the impact they can make from starting a match which is a very different challenge yeah okay let's go to the first of our guests I'm very pleased to say I think he's a friend of mine I think yes I think so just about uh, one of my two Scottish friends um, <laughs> the former Scotland um, British and Irish Lions centre Scott Hastings is here hello Scott Hi, Brian. Of course, you've got to mention as well to all the listeners, you're, you're one of my, my best and favourite roomies on tour. Yeah, that was because I never was there because I couldn't sleep through your snoring. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you're on um, Doddy Weir's uh, uh, trust committee and the opener with Doddy coming on with his sons to present the ball gave the event, well, a very emotional edge. Do you think that was actually a factor in Scotland's performance or am I... Uh, reading something into it that maybe I ought not to. I I, th- I think there was a, a touch of emotion, and it was part of the the whole sort of setup. Doddy had actually gone into the Scotland camp on Wednesday and had dinner uh, with the team. And Scottish rugby were magnificent in the way that they embraced Doddy and his fight against MND. And on top of that, all the players um, you know had inscribed into their jerseys that it, this was the My Name's Doddy Foundation. And uh, they were going to present their match jerseys after the match to the foundation to do what they want in terms of raising funds for charity. And I think that was a marvellous gesture. But the fact was that when he walked on, to the pitch and handed over the match ball. The respect from both the teams was just absolutely phenomenal. But the atmosphere had been set beforehand, Brian, not only with the sort of the, the theatre, the, the darkening of the stadium, the lights, the, the crowd. Um, it was certainly a special atmosphere. But what people got to remember that, that the Scotland boys hadn't played well against Samoa the week before. Now, although they scored five tries, their defensive frailties had been exposed. So they had a week to work out on the game plan. And I thought they were admirable. They were absolutely superb. Were you talking about it? I mean, what I think was impressive, and uh, as, as we know, the, the game is dictated largely, well, almost totally by the quality of ball you get up front and then how about how the halfbacks use it. And I was quite impressed by the accuracy with possession and the momentum that Scotland got. And that meant New Zealand didn't get the kind of go-forward, easy ball that they get against many teams and which guarantees that they will run all over you. They managed to stop that. And the flankers, especially, how much did they miss Watson when he went off? It was certainly a significant factor. He is a great ball carrier. He's he's very underrated. I actually thought he could have a, a position within the, the Lions squad, but ultimately didn't get that selection. He he comes with a you know a huge passion and background. He's, he's clever on his feet. He's very strong. But you're right there about what Scotland did was they got... They got some front foot football I thought Johnny Gray handled exceptionally well Daryl Marshall so young as a, a prop forward carrying the ball Stuart McAnally the hooker this was a young team who actually drove in at the all match retained the possession and although it was three all at half time you, you kind of felt hey Scotland did really well if there was one criticism they didn't take all the chances on the fine margins of a, of a game like that, it was extraordinary that uh, you know Scotland hadn't scored more points. Albeit, and also the other, the flip side was that if you look back over New Zealand's season, 
their actually strongest performances had always been in the first half of the games against the Lions, against Australia, France, Argentina. Uh, and yet it was Scotland who sort of dominated. So it was, it was excellent. But you saw the class of the All Blacks. They perhaps weren't playing the, the, the best rugby, but when Sonny Bill Williams is in form and laid the try on, um, you know, in the second, and both tries actually indeed in the second half, uh, they were phenomenal performances. Scott, Gavin Mayer is here. Good to hear from you, Gavin. You How are you? You too, very well, mate. Yes, <laughs> a long time we'll see. Yeah, just, um, are you, are we, do we think we're seeing signs of, of Gregor Townsend's impact so far? Did, you know, it's very early days in his tenure, but can you see a sort of a change in the way Scotland are trying to play the game? I think undoubtedly. I think what, what has happened is that you have to give credit to where Vern Cotter took the team to. He gave them a self-belief. He, he encouraged the players to play off the cuff. And the three wins that they had in this year's Six Nations was hugely important. But what I think we've seen from Gregor is now the belief in the attack systems that are in place that he very much is at the forefront of his coaching style that he had with the Glasgow Warriors. And I think that's allowed him to go into the Scotland camp, having worked with so many of the Glasgow Warriors players who ply their trade for Scotland, that he has this intuition. As a player, and Brian will know this as well, as a player, he always wanted to attack. He always wanted to test defences. And I believe that within the, the back division they've got at the moment, he undoubtedly has Finn Russell playing a similar type of game, flat to the game line. But not only that, he demands technical excellence and he demands an accuracy that I think Scotland have got within their game and their structure. But what's been tested at this moment in time is the injuries that they've got is yes. huge. And uh, that is of concern. And I think actually this coming Saturday, they face their sternest test in Australia. Having seen Australia close up, you do have to take into account the weather conditions because they were awful for the full uh, yeah. game and that limited bits and pieces. But I tell you what, their carrying backs are very strong. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. make ground very quickly. Beal is probably the, the only real dancing back in the, in the, in the sort of... In the sort of uh, your creative mould, but the others are powerful, and the Australian forwards are, are work, you know are very competent. So, I, I I just think I tell you the psychological thing would be interesting because Australia um, are smarting because they got it, the scoreboard. It looks like a hammering. It wasn't quite like that, but they've they've got a point to prove. And I just wonder how Scotland, who don't go into games very often. As not necessarily favourites, but certainly not under, not you know, tremendous underdogs will cope with that particular different shift in psychology. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, having raised the game so much against New Zealand, as all teams do, mm. having raised that bar, can they then set it higher? for the next performance and it's going to be really tough take the Doddy Weir situation take the fact it's a slightly earlier kickoff, and take the fact that they've played two weeks now of international rugby there's a lot of injuries in the camp mm. who's going to come into the team you're absolutely right Brian can they sustain that sort of level of accuracy especially with Australia having a smarting at the back of a, a hammering at Twickenham and, and they weren't they weren't out of the game you know uh, Australia and if they get a drier ball um, well, the Scotland Australia fixtures have been tremendous encounters over the last few years with Scotland winning the summer test match down in Sydney uh, in their own backyard but it was a close one and there's also a lot of heartache from not only last November's test but of course that Rugby World Cup defeat in the quarterfinals um, that was a hard one to bear so Scotland are very wary that, that 
Australia have such good ball handlers, such a great game plan. And remember, they're the team that last beat the All Blacks. So in many respects, you know, it's going to be a fascinating test match. And Scott, we talked about the, the Australian backs, but I think that one of their, the standout players for me on Saturday was Michael Hooper, who just still has got you know an engine to die for and, and a sort of warrior spirit. And obviously, Scotland will need to really keep an eye on him. Very, very much so. He carries so well. He gets in around the ball, and the contact area is absolutely key. Um, so for Scotland, that's going to be, you know, ultimately where where they where they the ball is won will determine whether they get that front foot football that I talked about uh, earlier on. But it's also the having the tactical nous to play against Australia because they are clever in the way that they're a very good team. Remember, this is a team that. Two years ago, you know, you know, knocked uh, England literally out of the World Cup, and 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 you always you're always worried about Australia unlocking you as a defence. And when their forward pack play as a real unit and they they retain that possession both in scrum and line out, the simple fact is they've got ball players in that back division and one of the best fullbacks in Falau who is an absolute attacking threat from anywhere. And if you look at the equivalent in Scotland, yes, you would go Stuart Hogg. Yes, it glimpses of Tommy Seymour, but we've, we we need to see people raise their game within mm-hmm. Scotland on a consistent basis, which will ultimately dictate the, the win on Saturday, but also going to the Six Nations. That how do they then physically compete against perhaps the stronger packs that we see from England and from France, and ultimately that's going to be a real test as well. Well, we won't have long to wait, so um, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks very much, Scott. <laughs> Always good to chat. All the best, Gavin. All the best. Right now, time to get a Welsh perspective on the weekend, and also uh, we might mention we might mention the Premiership with him. It's a regular contributor to the podcast, Richard Hibbard, Wales and Gloucester. Hello, Richard. Evening. Hello, mate. Uh, first of all, let's let's get your your winner um, over Sarri's out of the way. That's uh, oh, yeah. oh, tremendous, eh? <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, I think uh, we had 5% possession in the first half. Uh, we defended with our lives and uh, we, we managed to get the result in the end. People talk about squads and players being unavailable. At the end of the day, Saracens, as a club, have a, a system and a squad which is very, very strong and, and, to, and to beat them albeit on a different you know, basis, is, is always uh, an achievement. Oh, yeah, you know, you're, you're always going to be the best team, in the, uh, one of the best teams in Europe at the moment, but one of the best teams in the league, and you know you've got to be on your game, even if they are missing a few boys. With the squad they got uh, and the way they play, yeah, you've certainly got to be ready to fight till every time. Yeah, um, let's turn to Wales. I think this is fair. Uh, uninspiring so far in their autumn campaign, but on last Saturday... A very much changed team with a spine of, of experience. How uh, we were struggling in the studio to to understand and really gauge what that meant for Wales. Can you help us? It's sort of a it's a difficult one at the bottom of Wales. You sort of damned if you do and you damned if you don't. Like uh, Warren's been taking a lot of criticism over the years for for the same style of play. He's got to fight these combinations. You've got to start changing the game plan a bit, uh, which he did the first game. Uh, then. It's sort of one eye on the World Cup for that squad the weekend. So blood a few more youngsters, see what they like, see what they're about. I'm not overly concerned by the performances uh, because I know it's a sort of traditional phase. I'm just working out combinations and, and players, really. Richard, G- Gavin Mayer is here. I'm j- just wondering what you made of um, Liam Brown's uh, 
debut. Obviously, we're talking about the scrum there and the difficult, difficult scrum uh, he f- was facing. But he seemed to come through pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, and that's it. He just he's a young boy. He's a very young boy. He's been going well in the region, and he's been put in quite early. The age he is, so I thought he's quite positive uh, to deal with it. The, the learnings he can take from it is, is massive. He just needs a bit more exposure you now. You mentioned the, the, the alteration in style. Uh, do you think this is a permanent um, goal for, for Warren Gatland uh, and that he's going to stick to it come what may or will there be any resiling from it and sliding back to a, a more restricted and power game basis if things don't go right? And do you think uh, you know this is something that, that he has to aim for? Uh, hopefully it is something he'll stick to. Uh, but if, if they can evolve and develop this part of the game, they can always switch back to the old style as well. You've got, you've got very, a lot of boys, experienced boys who've played that style for many, many years. So switching back to that will be like riding a bike. You just switch straight back onto it. But this sort of part, obviously he, with the Lions in the summer, obviously they play the 210 combo again. Uh, England play the 210 combo. Uh, and I think, honestly, the other thing is the way forward for us. Uh, with Dan there, Got a win in the centre. Oh, you got you got Priest as well. So he's uh, he's got a very good selection of uh, of players to be uh, playmakers in that midfield. Coming up, we've uh, you know we've got a range of internationals. You've got much bigger fixtures than England have. It's New Zealand next week. So <laughs> predictions yeah. about you know look, New, Ze- New Zealand taken a long way by by Scotland. Uh, but you, you're going to have to play well, aren't you? Oh, we're going to have to play really well. <laughs> I, I think whoever faces them, uh, they naturally raise the game by whoever plays against them. Yeah, you've got to raise the game massively. Uh, but again, with them in the Lions series, uh, uh, almost losing it, uh, Australia and then Scotland, they just make them look like a team that could be beat. That pressure in the, the defence has got to be massive, exactly the way the Lions did summer with the the hard push. They they just didn't know how to deal with it. The, the blitz and uh, and that the line speed. So it's really important that to get that right. Uh, discipline is also key. Uh, you can't be caught into any sort of penalties or, or, or easy outs. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be exciting. Obviously, we get boys getting a lot of flack from losing to Australia again. Uh, not really performing against Georgia. So it's going to be it's going to be a bounce back. Uh, huge performance, Richard. Do you think there'll be? Do you think Warren Gatlin will be sort of relishing uh, going head to head with uh, Steve Hansen again? Uh, any sort of legacy from the Lions experience? I slightly. I I think he always likes going against him. Obviously, uh, I think Hansen really catch wants that job, uh, be it down the line. But he does, and uh, every time he plays against them, he uh, is a job interview for him. So uh, obviously, he did very well in the summer. <laughs> he was a uh, one all and a, and a draw, so he's a he's a deciding set for him. So it's going. It's a really important game for uh, uh, see how he approaches it. But again, he'll in fairness, he'll take that away from players. Yeah, he won't make it about him. It's, it's about the game and the performance. Richard, you need to step in and be his agent, then I think uh, in the negotiations. I mean, that's what you need to do. A new career for you, mate. That's, oh, yeah. that's great. Congratulations on your win over Saracens, and thanks very Thank much. You. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, cheers, buddy. Thank cheers, you, mate. Bye. Okay, next to the Irish weekend, which was well, the win is there, 
but it was a close one, 23-20 over Fiji. I'm pleased to say we can speak to the uh, former Ireland Lens Centre, Gordon Darcy. Hello, Gordon. Hi, Brian. How are you getting on? Hello, mate. Difficult to read this again because there were so many changes. It was only a narrow win. Was it? Was more? Would you think even accounting for the number of changes, more should have been expected from this Irish uh, team? Yeah, I, to be honest with you, the amount of changes and the age of the guys coming in, I don't necessarily think. We, we, I think, if anything, that having to grind out a win was more valuable okay. in the in the longer run. They could put, you know, if they win thirty, forty points. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you really learn from that? They really yeah. had to grind out. The having to play that type of rugby in the last twenty minutes, um, and having the I suppose the nuance in, in in the game to have to do that to work the penalty, kick the penalty, and then defend the lead. You know, I think I think that is invaluable if you're looking for a silver lining from from the performance. People who stood out for me, Carberry, I think um, one super break. Conway, you know, Conway. Who else for you made significant contributions? Yeah, I think Carberry is, is obviously the easy one to to look at his ability to beat defenders when there seems that there's nothing on, um, particularly for Sweetenham's try. Um, you know, just that as we're seeing every team playing that little ball from the forward pod in behind, and just spots the weakness and his ability to accelerate into it, and then find still has to unpick the two or three defenders that are in front of him. So it's a, I think that's a real nice, um, a, a really, really he's a really talented player. Um, I thought his kicking game was, you know, obviously there's been some speculation, some talk about his face kicking, but I thought his tactical kicking was is is very uh, underrated and thought it was very good as well in the game. Would have been interesting to see how he went in that last 20 minutes. Because I mean, I think um, it's very important for Ireland going forward, isn't it? Because with the best will in the world, and Johnny Sexton's been a, a superb player for Ireland, but he isn't going to last forever. No, and I think that's right. And there's obviously a a problem in that they're both at the same club. So to get both of them on the field at the same time, um, well, you know, means he's he's been playing a lot at 15, which isn't great for his development at at, uh, at 10. And we saw him in the last World Cup how important it is to have um, as much quality uh, in the 23 or 25 as as possible. Um, and Johnny Johnny's a guy you want on the field, um, but then you want a Joey Carberry that has big game experience under his belt as well. Um, but back to your original question, I think then, yeah, like they're the easy guys to pick out um, with um, Conway. But I think Jack Cowan did did well, and thought the bench did well when they came on. Keen Healy again, very impressive when he came on. He seems to really have rediscovered his his uh, his best form. Gordon, uh, Gavin Mayer is here. Um, I'm just just wondering overall with Ireland, um, are you sensing any tweaks to the game plan with Joe Schmidt this autumn? Um, at all? Are we seeing a slightly different style from Ireland? I don't think we've really yet to see anything that you can say is concrete evidence of that because South Africa were so poor. Um, a combination of being, you know, um, South African Jansi uh, ten was, you know, looked like a an average club player out of his depth at international, and you can see the South African forwards eventually just throwing in the towel and not wanting to, not wanting to 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 do it because the backs were just. So inept on the day, and that all that Lens, all that Ireland did was um, go for the. They just scored tries uh, off, you know, two three phases. It's very hard to see was there any evolution in the in the game plan, and the um, the changes into the CG game, and the the way the game fell in the last thirty minutes meant that it wasn't about any sort of I say any sort of evolution or any sort of. Uh, 
I suppose, game plan development that Joe might have had in his mind was completely shelved and it was just about securing a win. So I think we're, we're, we're kind of haven't really gotten a whole lot from the uh, November internationals apart from some some younger guys getting a bit of a, a game time. Just going to say, Gordon, about the uh, sort of conditioning of, of the players who've come back from the Lions tour. You know, Eddie Jones has made quite a big play over here about uh, having to be, you know, sort of give the, the England boys who are away a different sort of training programme. Would that have happened uh, with Ireland as well? Absolutely, yeah. There's the one benefit, and it's you know, it's it's been you know, a real we've made of a virtue of it is we really look after the players with the with the game time they play, and um, they would have had the full a full holidays post Lions. They would have been slow coming back into the contact, um, and they would have. There, some of them are are a little bit short on game time. Uh, to be honest, coming into this series, um, but you will see that development now. You'll see, the, hopefully, the benefit of that in the later, later parts of the season. You'll see, you know, you can see, you can see how Keane Healy is at a different level, say, to maybe Jack McGrath, because Jack McGrath only has maybe two or three games under his belt at this stage where Keane's been going since early on. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the limited amount that you can take from the autumn series as well, but and I think that's going to continue with the next fixture against Argentina because for all their you know, strengths and they they are good at it and they are adept at keeping the ball and going through uh, multiple phases. They don't have uh, quite the power up front that I don't think in terms of ball carrying that they did. And not and nor how wide do they have um, the sort of creativity to unlock defences. And if Ireland are uh, composed in, in defence, they won't concede points or many points, um, even though. Uh, Argentina might get a lot of ball. So, what what are you looking in particular for Ireland to achieve out of that one? It depends really on what Argentinian team shows up at this stage. I think they're getting used to the the volume of international rugby they're now playing and the attrition of playing again in the uh, in the Tri Nations Cup is uh, in you know they're probably not at the stage where they're getting the full benefit of that yet because they maybe don't have the strength and depth to be able to compete on all those levels. Um, but I think you know you hit the nail right in the head there. They 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 haven't seemed to kick on from the success of maybe six seven eight years ago, um, and the players coming through you know probably have to see you know probably a few more years um, of the of, of that growth before we'll see the the next generation of this Argentinian team coming through. But we're going to get a very physical contest. Uh, they're probably not playing this with that same fluidity that they were in the 15 World Cup. Um, for whatever reason that is, they don't it's strange, isn't it? Because that's you know a couple of years ago, and the, the squad hasn't players haven't changed that much. And uh, that was the one thing I thought that was very positive from them from the World Cup, apart from the the fact that they've reached the latest the, the very latest stages, was the increase in their ability to play with the ball. And that seems to have gone. And bear in mind, most of their players have played for the Jaguars in the Super you know, Super Rugby competition. You would have thought that's come on. I, I, I don't know if you've got uh, your thoughts on, on where that seems to have gone. Well, maybe that's the inherent problem is there hasn't been that many new faces coming in and um, maybe there is a bit of uh, complacency coming in or maybe just um, the lack of new voices or challenge for positions. Like there isn't a huge, there isn't a huge turnover in the Argentinian squad of, I think it's uh, it's like a chicken and egg situation. It's either really really positive, which it was for them in 2017 and in the 15 World Cup, and both those times it was brilliant because they had that um, they had that real passion of playing for each other. Whereas now maybe they need um, they need a few more bodies to be forcing their way in and. Uh, 
putting up because that always pushes up the standards. Like you see that with England at the moment, the competition for places means and a ruthless coach, which um, I'm sure you guys have had uh, many a conversation around. But Eddie Jones will pick players on form. The Lions who toured in the summer are not in his uh, test squad, so he picks on form, and that in itself drives up standard. And we have very much have that with uh, with Joe here as well, and. You know, he has a few interesting decisions um, this weekend because one or two guys, while it is hard to stand out in that in that game against Fiji, one or two guys did uh, put the put their hand up, um, and we'll have to see what he does with uh, with the reserve ten as well. I hate to intrude on private grief, but I mean, what was the reaction? What's it been uh, to the to the World Cup being awarded to? To France, yeah, it's a little, it's a, it's a bit mixed to be honest. I think in the cold light of day, I think we are, you know, as a country, we're obviously very disappointed. We we really played on the emotional side of things and how we would create a, a brilliant experiential um, uh, World Cup, and the others very much focused on the financial side of it. I think we competed on our best foot. Um, if we tried to compete purely on financial with the other two nations, we, you know, we would have glaringly, glaringly lost. Um, I think the big question that's really kind of hanging over people's head is like, what did France do in the, you know, in the shadows and in the, in, in the, in the, in the, uh, as, as you might, you, as you used to call it, in, in the dark arts of negotiation? What did they promise for secure vital votes? And you know, did is that the was there a certain naivety maybe about the Irish lobbying that it was too little, too late, and you know, should should these deals or could these deals be being have done? before ever going into the bid, and the bid was actually a formality that's saying, OK, well, if we have X, Y, and Z secured, um, which it seemed to be that France had. So we're kind of wondering what what happened. Bernard Laporte's probably going to get a statue uh, made to himself somewhere in, uh, in Paris after this. Yeah, it's funny, Gordon, because one of the things I was looking for clarity from World Rugby before the the vote was taken was the whole financial side of things that if there is no cap to what the the, the, the host country can offer then effectively you can, you can buy a World Cup where rugby were quite clear that the financial side of things only made up one part of the evaluation report anyway but it, it seems that that sort of two week period after the report um, was published that um, a lot of minds were changed and I think there is a slight concern for for rugby in terms of the smaller countries bidding if it just is about finance then we will never see the likes of Ireland or, or, or New Zealand again or, or any other of the smaller countries hosting the World Cup Yeah and that's like you know there is also a question should Ireland have been bidding for this World Cup if you kind of go with that loose cycle of a development World Cup and a, and a money maker was this the right one to be building in, bidding for in, in, in that cycle Um you know, and there is a little bit of confusion about why do the uh, process of um, getting the um, independence into to, rec- to do a recommendation if it's not binding. Um, if anything, it, it probably hurts more than anything else because it's a recommendation from the World Cup for the from the IRB. They end up effectively with a little bit of egg in their face, and France viewed it as uh, well. This is a, this is an opportunity for us to uh, to, to sneak a, to sneak a World Cup. Um, but yeah, but the thing is, when it comes down to infrastructure and financials and tangible assets, if you get an independent evaluator, that's very easy to um, to quantify and put it into there. Whereas if you're trying to explain from an Irish point of view, say, that if you put a, if you put Fiji in, uh, into Wexford Town, that Wexford are going to fill the stadium, the stadium that they that they travel to, and you you can't. Um, 
you can't quantify that, but everybody knows it's going to happen. So, you know, it's it's a it, it was a funny process, and I think if you're going to do that independent evaluation, it, maybe it needs to be binding, or you know, why do it in the first place? I know they wanted transparency, but it seems to have caused more uh, more trouble than it has uh, than it has solved. No doubt, we'll get to the truth at some uh, some point, whatever whatever it is. <laughs> but uh, I think it'll be a slow process. Gordon, thank you very much once again. Thank you. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you. Time now to turn to the women's game. I'm pleased to say that we have commentator and head of UK rugby at Pundit Arena, Nick Heath, joining us. Now, Sarah Orchard's contribution to the BPC's TV uh, effort alongside me last Saturday drew one or two, well, not surprising, but frankly disappointing remarks from men who said that she didn't know anything about the game despite being a qualified referee. They said they didn't know anything about the rules, not understanding that they're actually called laws. And yet we don't have problems when Nick Heath commentates on women's rugby because he's good and it frankly doesn't matter, actually. It really does not matter. Uh, Nick, are you there? Yeah, I am here, Brian. How are you? It's, it's, <laughs> do you have it's, sympathy with for, for Sarah? <laughs> I do. And, and Sarah is an exceptional professional. Uh, she's incredibly good at her job. She's aware of, you know, what a woman's voice can sound like in commentary and getting excited. She works to ensure that, you know, those big moments are, are played out well vocally so that it so that it fits the mould. Um, she knows the game incredibly well. Um, it, it's such a lazy argument from fans that are just not used to hearing a woman's voice on commentary uh, that they're then going to come out with the, with the sort of, you know, ridiculous negative comments. It's hopelessly misogynistic. It's, it's people having an expression just because, you know, I, I don't want a woman telling me about the game that I love. Well, frankly, she, Sarah would know more about the game than <laughs> yeah. a lot of fans, Quite, yeah. uh, as you say, yeah. that call them rules or laws. Uh, she's an exceptional journalist and commentator, and uh, you know it, it's a privilege to be able to hear her on the airwaves. And, and you know, I, I, uh, I watch back the highlights, and uh, mm. you know there was plenty of insight from your good self as usual. And you get a bad rap a lot of the time, so you know people stick to uh, to old arguments <laughs> over these sorts of things, and ultimately they've stopped listening a long time ago. Yeah, they, look, in, in, the England women. Um, 79-5 against Canada. Yeah. Now, Canada, people have to understand this. Canada, traditionally, in the last few years, have been a very strong power, um, including the uh, winger, Magali... Oh, Magali, what's Magali Harvey. Magali yeah. Harvey, who, who scored one of the best tries I've seen by anybody, yeah. male or female, to go the yeah. length of the field in the last World Cup. Now, were Canada under strength or were England just so good? Uh, it, well, it wasn't the same Canada side that we used to see. I mean, Canada were quite disappointing during the World Cup yeah. uh, in itself, uh, which was a bit of a shame in Ireland because they are one of the world powers in the women's game. They have certainly been over the last few years. They were in that World Cup final with England in 2014, of course, um, and they they had a result against them in the pool stages. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, you would have. You would, I mean, sort of passing fans might basically think that this is going to be a tighter or should have been a tighter affair than it was. But there were 14 debutants uh, in the Canadian side. Oh, well, Rattier has, uh, has left his post. So there's an interim coach uh, in place at the moment, Sandro Fiorini. Um, it's quite a young side. There's no Kelly Russell, no Magali Harvey. Uh, a lot of the big names are out. I think largely due to being rested. I was trying to find that information out ahead of commentators. I was like, where are these players? Kelly Russell played in that historic first Women's Barbarians game a couple of weeks ago in Limerick. Uh, but uh, they were just saying to me that there's no official line on it, but ultimately they've 
they played a fair bit of rugby leading up to the World Cup and sacrificed a lot. And, and you know, the women's game is still amateur. So these people have got to negotiate time mm-hmm. off for jobs and stuff. And, it, and it's just the case that by the time this November tour came around, I think it was just a bit too much for some of them to get even more time off. And so it's seen as an opportunity to develop a few younger players, which is something Canada are doing. But, you know, England were doing as well. Seven new debutants in their lineup, two in the starting 15. And, and Simon Middleton has, has shaken it up a little bit, make, making seven changes ahead of playing them in the second game tomorrow night at the Soup. Uh, Nick, the the Tyrrells Premier 15s is a a new format this year. How do you think it's going? I think it's going well. It was met with a lot of criticism at the launch because obviously uh, a few clubs had to barter for position to be able to get included and at Litchfield with a big name casualties mm. that that weren't part of it. And then you know once it was found out that England's women weren't going to be contracted beyond uh, the end of August. Uh, in terms of the 15s game, and a lot of people were up in arms about that. The RFU said, look, we've got a plan. We've got a three-year contract for this new league in place. Um, they've got a sponsor on board as well. And uh, and it's all about putting the money into the coaching and the setup and the structure so that these girls can, can you know, have that to play under. And I was sceptical, uh, I have to admit, along with a few others. But, but having actually seen the league in action and commentated on a few of the games, it's very interesting talking to the coaches, the likes of, you know, Susie Appleby or Gary Street. And, and these coaches, they're... They are saying that actually what some of the senior England players are giving to these teams, uh, whether it's Sarah Hunter at Loughborough or you know Rachel Burford at Quinns, they're actually setting a standard for these amateur players. And if you've got a professional coach and you've got a decent strength and conditioning department, then these girls are understanding the standards that they've got to live up to. And, and actually the structures that are in place across the league are making girls have to understand that the diet is important, that you know, the, the time they turn up to training, all these things are key that perhaps across the board in the women's game hasn't quite been of the, of, of the top standard yet. So it would almost be foolish to make it semi-professional, professional yet, when actually you know a lot of the players in the league aren't quite holding themselves up to professional standards and, and they're able to follow the few girls that have had professional contracts and understand you know what it takes to be able to play at the very top level and, and ultimately get a bit of remuneration for it. Nick, uh, it's Calvin Mayers here. You mentioned Sarah Hunter, Nick. She's a player, World Player of the Year last year, World Cup winner in 2014. Um, does she really stand among the greats now of the English game? Yeah, she certainly does. You know, Lawrence Delalio, Richard Hill, the sort of people that she looked up to, and uh, and she's proved herself to be uh, absolutely on their level in terms of the women's game. It was quite interesting going into the first uh, game against Canada that uh, Simon Middleton or the England coaches uh, apparently turned round to uh, to Sarah Hunter and Poppy Cleal, who actually played eight in that game while Sarah was at six on Friday night, um, and said to them early in the season when Loughborough took on Saracens, you know, this is a this is a direct shootout between you two for that first test against Canada. And, uh, and in their view, Poppy Cleal came out of it on top. So, uh, so she got the start, chance to start at eight. Uh, and then Sarah Hunter was at six. But they've moved Sarah back to eight. And, and in my mind, actually, when, when Sarah Hunter slipped back to eight, once Poppy Cleal left the field on Friday, then she really looked much more comfortable um, making a nuisance of herself, getting in there, securing good turnover ball. Um, she is very difficult to move off the ball once she's on it. She, she will take that ball at close quarters, make those key yards to get over the game line. And, and she's so good at creating that body shape on the position to give her scrum half time to get the ball away. And it's, it's all those tiny little technical details that allow a team to maintain its momentum on the front foot. And, and Sarah Hunt is brilliant at that. She's a Trojan in defence as well. She's got an incredible engine that keeps going. And, you know, it's going to be such a, such a great moment for her to be able to be back in the number eight shirt, running out for the second test against Canada tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, massive congratulations to her for the 100th cap. She's, uh, she's a great... Uh, great athlete and uh, and honours the shirt well. And a great role model as well, I think, for the women's game. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, she was involved um, as a development officer with the RFU for a number of years before she's she signed a full time contract with uh, with Loughborough. And uh, and actually, you know, she's she's going into the community and she's she's meeting young girls. And you know, for for women coming up through the game, I, you know, I spend a lot of time at the end of these games, and you get a lot of young fans coming around to the players, and the players really understand their duty into talking to to the young fans, making sure they they take the time to to encourage and. And you know, put a bit of stardust in the eyes of these youngsters that one day might want to be in an English shirt themselves. And yeah, Sarah is a, is a very, very decent role model for all of that. As are you know, most of the Red Roses. Um, I think it's fair to say, um, as, as evident in the fact that the game is continuing to grow as, as rapidly as it is. Nick, thank you very much. Take no care. problem at all. Cheers. Well, the Rugby League World Cup has reached its uh, latter stages, and to discuss. The semi-finals with us and the quarter-final results. I'm pleased to say we've got Craig Murdoch, the former Wigan Hull Sharks and Salford rugby player. Hello, Craig. Good evening, Brian. Let's uh, let's not start with England. Let's start with the remarkable scoreline first of all of two four, uh, which is unusual in itself. But New Zealand had the two and Fiji had the four. Yeah, without a doubt, you know that's a, a scoreline from you know many many years ago when. It was a lot harder to score in awful conditions, but yeah, you know, it was a fantastic defensive effort from Fiji, and I think New Zealand have had a disastrous tournament. Not only did they lose to Tonga in the earlier rounds, then they've lost this quarter-final that everybody in the world of rugby league would have expected them to win. But you know, let's not focus on New Zealand's deficiencies. Let's look at Fiji's brilliance. You know, Fiji have been one of the shining lights of the tournament. I think you know there has been some. Some of the South Sea Islands have been very, very good and Fiji take their place in the semi-final and that's good good for the, the game of rugby league as a whole. You usually associate island sides either with being you know, very, very physical, like Papua New Guinea, um, or having a lot of flair. And to Fiji, um, you know, in the other quarter, very uh, traditional for that. But in this particular game, you know, the dominance in the first 40 minutes... Two thirds of possession they had virtually, and uh, to keep a side with as many experienced players as New Zealand out of the game for that long shows a you know ability to defend and, and get ball off them, but b to complete sets and have some tactical nous as well. Yeah, I think you know you're exactly right in your analogy there, Brian. Obviously, when you see the the island side, they're usually gung ho and, and very flair orientated, but. I think what Fiji did fantastically well against New Zealand was they stuck to the game plan. You know, and as I said, they, they didn't do anything flashy. They just kept grinding it out and grinding it out. And as you said, you know, defensively they were very, very good to keep. You know, in modern day rugby, in both codes, Brian, to keep any team from scoring is a fantastic effort. And I think to stop New Zealand scoring a try in the full game, it was a really, really brilliant effort. And you could see what it meant to those Fiji guys after the game. You know, they were delighted and. You know, whether they can do that against Australia in the coming weeks, I'm not so sure. But you know, they've had a fantastic tournament. And for them and Tonga to get to the semi-finals, I think that's a really, really big achievement. Yeah, let, I mean, we won't discuss the Tonga other than to note um, the 24-22 Lebanon um, win, uh, win over Lebanon. And Lebanon, let's give them a mention for doing well in the tournament. But let's go on to Australia, Samoa. Very comfortable 46-0 win and against a team not, uh, I mean, no walkover at all. So Australia looking pretty strong at the moment again. Yeah, very ominous, isn't it? You know, yep. they, they, are, they are playing very, very well. They've got their big game players playing, you know, fantastically well. And it's, it's 
to worry for all other sides how they can stop Australia scoring, never mind scoring themselves, but how do they stop Australia scoring? Because obviously if you're going to beat them, you're going to need to score, but you've got to stop them scoring more than you. And their attack just looks so crisp. And Billy Slater's back to his best. And, you know, Cameron Smith just seems to get better and better and better. And, you know, the team they've got at the moment is as good as I've seen in a long while in rugby league. It's, it's a brilliant team. It's got some great individuals, but also as a team, there is no weaknesses. And, it's a worry, you know, with my England cap on, but also as a rugby fan, Brian, you've just got to admire how good they are at this moment Absolutely. in time. Absolutely. I mean, and also it seems to me that uh, their forwards, per carry, you know, they seem to make, and it's a big difference, this, you, you make two or three yards after each contact, so they're not being stopped dead when the tacklers are there. And over, you know, over a set, that you creates advantageous field position for, 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 for the kicks, um, the territorial kicks, the tactical kicks, puts he puts the other side under pressure. How how are England going to slow the, uh, the 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 ball down and the you know the play of the ball down well, Le- I think legally? I, yeah, I think I think what it all comes down to, Brian, is I think it's like the chicken or the egg. What comes first? Because obviously, what Australia are doing very well defensively is stopping the other team making yards. They're putting pressure on the kicker, so when their kicks they're kicking back to Australia, they're able to take that in space and in time, and then if they win that first tackle and play the ball quickly, they're outside backs, and then the big forwards go down, and then the reverse happens when they're kicking the ball. They've got time and space to put pressure on their opposition. So, you know, what England, I think, have got to do, if they get that far, because let's make no bones about it, the semi-final against Tonga on Saturday is going to be very, very difficult, and England are going to have to play well. But if they do get to the final, they've got to have a better kicking game. They've got to be able to be at parity. And if they can turn Australia around and then slow them down in that earlier sets, it takes a little bit of <clears throat> pressure off their back three when they get the ball. So you go into that arm wrestle looking for a mistake. But what Australia have been doing in this competition so far is in that arm wrestle, they're already starting past the halfway. So they've already got an advantage. And what England need to do is take them back past that halfway and at least start from a level playing field. Well, let, let's discuss England. A 36-6 victory of uh, Papua New Guinea. Now, it was another uneven performance, wasn't it? There were high points like, uh, do you remember Grilvey again? Yeah. But uh, when you're making you know, so many handling errors, and, and then not, not all of these were forced, you, you're going to put yourself under pressure. Yeah, you are. And I, th- I think there's two ways to look at it, Brian. I think if you'd have said to... England and the coaching staff before the game, you get a 36-6 win. I think they would have bit their hand off for that because I think Papua New Guinea have been really good throughout this tournament. But when you saw the game, as you said, I think Wayne Bennett summed it up, the good, the bad and the ugly. And, and that was pretty, pretty accurate because there was some really good stuff. You know, McGilvery is fantastic again. Some brilliant players from Callum Watkins and Sean O'Loughlin. But there was, as you said, far, far, far too many drop balls and unforced errors. And if they are going to progress to the final by beating Tonga, they've got to cut those out. And if they do get to the final, if they lose that much ball in the final against Australia, we will be looking at a cricket score and the cricket guys are out there as well. So we need to cut them down. But they're there, Brian. They've got the ability to do that. New Zealand are back home and and out the tournament. So I think we, we understand everybody in the camp understands what they need to do. And I'm sure they'll be working on that this week. We haven't mentioned the big B yet but uh, Burgess, obviously a star name for, 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 for good and bad reasons and the fact is that he has big game temperament but is he likely to make that significant difference to England's chances? I think 
I think, look, you know, we needed to, to get him through that game, get him a bit of confidence back in his knee. I think, I think what we have got, Brian, we have got a few players who can hurt these top teams. Who your likes of Burgess, you know, your likes of Callum Watkins. You throw in McGilvery, probably the Aussies had never heard of McGilvery before this tournament, but now you know he's probably the standout player of the whole tournament with Valentine Holmes. Mm. So we have got players who can hurt them, but what we need to do collectively is everybody play above what they have done before, and then we can give those Aussies a game. But, you know, Burgess is one of those that Australia will be fearful from, and he can, you know, on his day, you know, be a threat to them, and let's hope he can be in the next couple of weeks. Uh, well, it's not a given yet. England have got to get past Tonga, but if they do get to the final, and it is an Australia final, I suppose we'll be wanting a, a Leeds-type performance against Castleford, won't we? Yeah, we will. You know, look, Brian, you know you've been involved in many sporting events where, you know, you should win, but you don't always do that. And no, no sporting team has got any, any right to win any game. It's on that given day, on that given performance. And we've seen over the years, sadly not, not, not for quite a while now, but England on any day can put in a performance that beats Australia and hopefully we can improve against Tonga on Saturday yep. and get to that final and then give it everything we've got and, and, and beat Australia. I think also, Brian, I think we've got to be a bit, throw a bit of realism in there as well. And I think, I think getting to the final for England is, is first is a positive. Mm-hmm. You know, you never start anything without wanting to win it as a sportsman. But if you look back and England lose the final by a try or maybe even two, I think there's big positives to take from that. But obviously we'd love to win it. Well, first things first, let's hope for, let's, let's let, I'm sure what they're wanting is not an error-free performance that never happens, but a much more even one. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks, Brian. Gavin, uh, just quickly to wrap up the fixtures next week. England's one should be straightforward, but there's two big, you know, relative, well, there are two big games, aren't there? Scotland, Australia... Wales, New Zealand. Any chance of home wins there? I fancy Scotland, Brian. I think I said at the start of the programme, I think Australia, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they react to their disappointment, frustration. Um, Scotland, I think, will will be able to grow in their performance. They will will take confidence uh, out of their performance against the All Blacks. I just think in Cardiff, the All Blacks should have enough, but I expect it to be a a rip-roaring contest. Well, let's hope. Okay, that's all we've unfortunately got time for this week. You've been listening to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. Thank you very much to my co-host, Gavin Mayers, and to my producer, as always, Abby Patterson. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back next week, but for now, goodbye. Brian Moore's Full Contact is just one part of the Telegraph Sport podcast family, as you can also subscribe and download Total Football. Join Tom Gibbs and a host of Telegraph football reporters as they aim to take you behind the football stories of the weekend. Your Monday morning commutes will be instantly better for it.